This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. I bring this show once a month to KWMR Community Radio, and we dive into the big blue ocean and talk with ocean experts who share their expertise about discoveries, explorations, research, policy, and stewardship associated with the marine environment, especially in our national marine sanctuaries. This show is once a month on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. and rebroadcast the following Monday at 1 p.m. on KWMR. You can also catch archives and subscribe to a podcast at cordellbank.noaa.gov. If you're looking out on the ocean, you never know that there are significant geological features below all that water and all the waves, much like the land portion of the earth. Mountains, shelves, slopes, hills, deep canyons, all these features are under the water and create significant habitats that are unique and somewhat isolated. They are treasures to be explored, and in starting in 2002, a collaborative of research institutions and agencies in the Monterey region set out to explore a prominent seamount known as Davidson Seamount off the Big Sur coast. Previously known as a productive area for seabirds and whales on the surface, there were many mysteries as to what existed 2,400 meters below the surface. Today we are going to talk with Dr. Andrew DeVoglaire from NOAA's Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary to the south of Point Reyes. As the research coordinator for the sanctuary, Andrew is responsible for all aspects of the sanctuary's research program. This includes facilitating collaboration among more than 20 research groups in the region, providing technical information to decision makers, assessing sanctuary health with monitoring programs, and developing research on sanctuary resource management issues. He is the director of the Sanctuary Integrated Monitoring Network, a program that assesses sanctuary health using collaborative regional monitoring programs. Andrew's main interest is to use science to develop sound resource management decisions. He earned a Bachelor's of Arts in Biology from the University of California at Berkeley, an MS in Marine Science from Moss Landing Marine Labs, and a Ph.D. in Biology from the University of California at Santa Cruz. So, Andrew, welcome to Ocean Currents. You're live on the air. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for the nice introduction. (laughs) Well, it's pretty impressive to do that. Um, Thanks for sending that along. So there are so many features on the seafloor that they're so hard to imagine. When most of us look at the water, we just see big open water. Can you briefly start by introducing some of the different features that are on the the seafloor itself? Yeah, well, I think, um, like you said in your introduction, a lot of people assume that the ocean floor is a lot like the beach, just going out and maybe sloping down and being a, a flat, sandy bottom. But there are tremendous features, like you described, um, that we have on land. They're also down there in the oceans. We have off the central California coast some uh, very deep uh, canyons, a couple of miles deep, very steep. Uh, one of them is the, the same size as the Grand Canyon. And we also have uh, undersea mountains, just uh, towering mountains that... that uh, that come up from the seafloor, and uh, technically, if um, if they're over three thousand feet tall, we can call them seamounts. Otherwise, they're just mountains under the sea. Much like Cordell Bank is not a seamount. I guess not technically, though it has a lot of uh, similar features in that uh, it it generates uh, because of its geology some very interesting 
and uh, unique biology. So where is Davidson Seamount? That's the topic of the day. Can you give us location, whereabouts, where we might get a mental picture of it? Yeah, uh, those of you who are familiar with the Big Coast, uh, maybe you've gone down to visit the Hearst Castle. It's about 90 miles west from there. And um, those of you familiar with Monterey, uh, the Monterey Peninsula, it's about 70 miles uh, southwest um, into the ocean from that point of land. So it's really not very far away, and it's kind of surprising that, uh, that none of us have ever looked there until the last few years. Now, it was discovered in 1933 by George Davidson, the, the coastal mapper here. How did he find it if he couldn't see it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In the old days, uh, they did things... Um, they did things the hard way. They did a real nice job of it, but it was often um, a lot more uh, cumbersome and time-consuming than we have now. Uh, now we can use sound to map the seafloor bottom and, and see what it looks like. But in those days, uh, you were out in a boat, you traveled a certain distance, and you dropped a big lead weight on a string and saw how much string went out. And then you went over to another location and dropped the lead weight again and uh, saw how far the string went out, and then you compiled all of those string lengths to make a map. And George Davidson came across a big bump in the bottom of the ocean um, that was actually the first uh, sea mountain. Uh, because of his description, it became uh, the first geologic feature called a sea mount. So that must have been quite a bit of rope or string on board his vessel. How deep, what is the very top of this mountain that he must have hit upon with this lead weight. Right. So um, it is very deep, and that's really why we haven't been there. The shallowest portion of the seamount is 4,000 feet deep. And then uh, if you continue down the side of the mountain to sort of the bottom, the seafloor there, it's another 7,000 feet uh, from the top of the seamount to the seafloor. So um, 7,500 feet, if you were from your radio station and I'm going to uh, drive up to, to Lake Tahoe, you'd probably be covering that, that height as you went over Echo Summit at about 7,500 feet. Uh, the difference with the seamount is, um, while it would take you a long time to drive across and up to Tahoe, um, you can travel that distance in the width of four miles for the Davidson Seamount. It's really only, uh, it's only eight miles wide. Wow, so it's very vertical. Very steep. So, um... How did you get interested in getting out there? It's pretty far outside the sanctuary boundaries. Was there any uh, research prior about surface wildlife out there? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Um, a lot of biologists and scientists, if you go in their offices, they, uh, they have maps. They like maps, and their, their maps are up on the wall. And even though that area is outside the sanctuary, one of our maps um, has the seafloor outside the sanctuary mapped, and there's this big bump there. And uh, when we had a new superintendent, he was sort of assessing things, and he said, Andrew, what's out on that area of the seafloor? And I actually um, hadn't thought about it too much. I'd noticed that the seamount was there, and so that got us thinking. We thought, well, maybe someday we'll go out there. Um, and then um, there was a, uh, a geologic expedition that the Monterey Bay Aquarium Institute uh, went to look at that. There's um, a scientist there named Dave Clegg who studies volcanism, and he went to look at the seamount uh, as a, a volcano feature. And as I happened to be in Moss Landing when they were coming off the, the ship, and I noticed that they'd brought along a, uh, 
a piece of a coral that they had found dead um, on the sea mountain, and it was this big, thick thing, you know, the diameter of over 12 inches, um, uh, a diameter of about 12 inches. So, you know, pretty impressive organism. That that piqued my interest. And then, um, you know, other hints that something might be going on out there is that uh, uh, wildlife viewers that like to watch birds in the bay, apparently when they wanted to see interesting offshore creatures, <clears throat> they would take boat trips to the Davidson Seamount to look at the birds out there. And then there's a few fishermen who had told me that uh, the fishing for albacore tuna could be particularly good in that area in, at some times of the year. So all of those things led to uh, to us thinking, you know, we should probably have a closer look. Um, there's this new government program that then came out called um, the Office of Ocean Exploration. And uh, which is an interesting concept to to go and explore places you've never seen before. And we proposed to them that that we should go and look at the Davidson Sea Mountain. Fortunately, they agreed and gave us some some money to put together an expedition. It's amazing. So, what type of equipment is involved to do research at these great depths? I mean, it must be you need to stay out there. It's probably too long of a distance to go back and forth to land. Yeah, it's definitely a. Uh, a, uh, a unique effort to uh, to work in the ocean and then to work in the ocean that deep. Um, we went there uh, with a special ship uh, called the Western Flyer that's operated by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. And um, when it's out at sea, it can open, it's a catamaran. It has a, a bay in the middle of the ship that they can open up and lower a remotely operated vehicle uh, down through that hole. So we call it, it's an ROV. And there's a whole lot of cable on a spool, um, probably um, just like Davidson had a, probably had this special spool for his string. Otherwise, he'd get all tangled up. Uh, and Bari has a, a famous uh, uh, spool of wires and cables inside the uh, the Western Flyer. And um, it's one of the few vehicles, I believe there's like half a dozen of them in the whole world that can operate at that depth. So uh, fortunately... Um, we have Ambari as a partner uh, to work with us in this region, and they have the resources uh, to go that deep. And and so um, associated with that, you know, there's a uh, you know, there's a special machine that has to be able to deal with the huge pressures of the sea down there. Um, you can't have any you know air in your cables or any gas because things would collapse. So you know every wire is surrounded by a tube that has some sort of oil in it. And um, it's, a, it's a complex piece of machinery that has fantastic cameras, and it has a mechanical arm, and it has some trays that you can collect things with. That's amazing. And the video footage is uh, um, carrying up the wires, I take it, live as you're down there, right? Right. So as the uh, ROV is going down, and to reach that depth, you know, it can take a couple of hours uh, to get down there. Um, but as it's operating, then um, there's a room. It looks, looks a little bit uh, like a what you might imagine might be in a NASA space center or something. It's a, uh, a dark room with, uh, you know, 20 or so uh, video monitors, and there's a couple of pilots, uh, one of them that is what we call flying the ROV, and another one that has uh, his arm inside this mechanical brace. And as they move their arm, the uh, the ROV arm moves, and they can pick things up, uh, pinch them lightly, or uh, and pick up a, an organism, or they can grab something's hard and and break a rock. And so the pilots are working in tandem, 
while the scientists are sitting next to them operating some of the cameras and uh, making decisions about what sorts of uh, activity should be going on. So there's a, um, uh, a lot of um, discussions, um, a lot of instrumentation that we can measure uh, depth and temperature on the ROV. And then really the whole ship is wired so that in every, uh, every room on the ship, um, somebody can turn the channels on the TV they won't see a, a regular TV station, but they'll see what the different cameras on the ROV are looking at and what it looks like on different parts of the ship. So somebody um, who's on a break and not uh, not having their turn in the uh, in the uh, the command center there can watch the TV, and if they see an organism that they want to uh, collect or they want to know something's about, they can run down and uh, get involved with the process, or they can pick up the phone and call the, the scientist that's working at the uh, the control. It's pretty cool. When I got, I did a tour of the Western Flyer, and I remember seeing a, a big monitor in the in the galley area, so you could be eating breakfast and watching what's going on down below. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, it it is it is, and it's funny um, in that um, there are different people that are excited about different things. I was in the control. Uh, room once, and uh, we were going along, and uh, there was this fish, and I didn't think too much about it because I don't know as much about fish, but uh, Dr. Greg Caillé from Moss Landing Marine Labs, all of a sudden, he must have been watching the TV. He came uh, shouting down the hallway and coming down the steps and saying, you know, that was uh, Bathy Chownax, and it was the first live species ever seen, and he was really excited. So we collected it to, to try to bring it back to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. That's amazing. It sounds like a lot of fun in addition to exciting and and so so worthwhile. Um, for those that just tuning in, you're listening to KWMR, and this is Ocean Currents, and we're talking with Dr. Andrew DeVoglier from the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary about Davidson Seamount. So one thing you said earlier, Andrew, was uh, sometimes it takes a couple hours for this ROV d- to get down to those depths. There must be some really cool things. You mentioned a fish earlier on the way down. Um, are scientists watching kind of the changes in the zones as you go down into the into the darkness? Yeah, um, we sure are. And uh, there's um, sometimes it's there's a lot of blue uh, as you're going through, you know, uh, pretty uh, open space of ocean, but there's often a lot of what we call marine snow, and that's um, the debris of uh, plankton and other organisms that are constantly uh, forming and and drifting down to the bottom of the sea where uh, other organisms at the bottom are filtering it out and eating it. So there's a lot of marine snow, and then there's a lot of gelatinous creatures that are are gathering this marine snow and other fish that are swimming by. There's a whole food chain uh, in the water column. And what we saw that's interesting uh, in my mind this year is that uh, every time we dove down, we came across uh, the, uh, the jumbo squid. It's a, uh, a large squid, also called a Humboldt squid, um, that was actively feeding and uh, moving around near the, uh, the sea surface. Um, it can be a uh, uh, it, it apparently can be an aggressive squid in that at, at one point they actually um, rush the ROV in some way sort of attacking it. And um, so we got that caught on camera, and it was exciting 
for us. We had the BBC aboard with us on our last trip, and uh, so they spent a lot of time uh, wanting to drift just above the seamount to look at um, some of these uh, gorgeous uh, jellyfish-like creatures, some of them that actually uh, reflect light enough that, you know, it looks like something you'd see on on the Las Vegas Strip with the bright blinking lights of all sorts of different colors. So there's a lot to view there, and at the very surface, um, it's an interesting place for birds and mammals. So we'll see uh, the albatross, the black-footed albatross. It has one of the largest wingspans in the world. And um, we were um, also trying to, uh, um, on one of our cruises, collect skin samples of the sperm whale uh, to know if um, there's different uh, genetic populations onshore and offshore. So above seamounts, you can find different types of um, wildlife, you know, birds, uh, mammals, and then you have uh, a whole different series of organisms as you go from the more lit portions of the ocean to the deeper. And then once you hit the seamount, there's a zonation from the top of the seamount to the bottom as well. So once you actually hit the seamount, are you seeing life immediately? Um, this is a huge mountain. It's about four, it, from the bottom of the ocean to the top of it, it's about 4,000 feet? Yeah. What's the it, height It's of actually, it? yeah, from the bottom of the ocean to the top of the seamount, 7,500. Then it's another 4,000 to the, to the top. But, yeah, um, well, that was um, when we first went out there, we decided what we'd do is go to the bottom and then just work up the side of it and describe everything we could see in the, in the videos. And um, to date, uh, we've done 16 dives. And uh, we've recorded 60,000 organisms that we've seen. Um, And it turns out that uh, there's about 170 different ones that we've noted so far. But they're very different from the bottom to the top. And um, at the bottom, we would see things like uh, sea cucumbers. Uh, One of the more interesting organisms we saw was something called a sea spider. Uh, We find them in the rocky shores here in central California, but they're much bigger in the deep sea. You know, I would say these were about... um, uh, maybe uh, 12 inches across, so a large spider-like creature that when it start moving would actually start swimming through the water. Wow. Uh, we saw some interesting fish uh, with, with names like, you know, the halosaur, and um, we saw some angler-type fish along the sides. But what, um, what everybody, it, it turns out that what we were often antip- anticipating the most was uh, reaching the ridges and the top. We never knew really what we were going to see, But, you know, out from the black, because it's pitch black down there, all of a sudden the lights, you know, you'd see these very bright colors of yellow, pink, and white, and we saw these uh, fantastic sponges and corals, you know, some of them eight feet tall. Um, Some of these sponges look as, you know, as big as a sofa, and um, all these bright different colors. Um, and they're mostly up at the top because uh, it looks like they, they're orienting themselves into the currents so that they can filter out as much food um, uh, from that position a lot more if they're at the top, uh, facing into the currents like, like an organism might into the wind so that uh, there's a lot more drifting by them that they can collect and eat. So they're mainly eating, um, you said, that snow, that detrital stuff that's drifting through in the water? Yes, that's that's what the that's what the corals are eating, and that's what the the, the sponges are are filtering out those as well as um, bacteria and some other things. So, I mean, what your viewers uh, or your listeners um, might uh, might be surprised about is that I think when most people think of corals, they're thinking maybe of um, 
snorkeling in Hawaii or some things like that. But way deep down in the ocean where it's completely black and the, uh, the temperature of the water is actually you know, not much above freezing, there are these giant corals down there and giant sponges that are, uh, that are living in anonymity, I guess, until we came across them at Davidson Seamount. How old do you estimate some of these corals and sponges? You're describing these sizes that are just huge and immense. They must be fairly old. Yeah, well, that was, um, once we did find out that those corals were there, uh, we wanted to bring some uh, uh, aging experts out with us to help us collect some samples and, and try to determine their ages. And it turns out that some of these corals are, are ancient. Um, we uh, we don't know exactly their ages yet, but some of them are clearly um, over 200 years old. So um, they're large, they're old, they're relatively fragile. So if they do get disturbed, it's not something that that would recover in our lifetimes anyway. So um, it turns out in sort of seamount ecology and uh, deep sea ecology that the uh, these uh, organisms are are fragile. They provide habitat for other organisms. Um, and they're, they're old, and it would take them a long time to recover if they were disturbed. Are there um, scientists that study some different environmental patterns in aging corals or sponges, like studying different environmental conditions that might have existed um, in some of the older species? I mean, they're only, if they're only 200 years old, that's not really a nice age or anything like that. But is that possible to do in some of these older animals? Yeah, you know, that, that is something that I think is done a lot in, uh, in sort of more of the warm water corals. I know that some of the, the colonies, big colonies of these corals can be several thousand years old. So there's, there's markers in these reefs. Um, it's, it's not something I know a lot about. And I don't think it's something that's done so much in the deep sea. But um, some things we're going to be watching for in terms of environmental events in the deep sea is that it's just coming out now that um, with the increased CO2 in the atmosphere, um, that CO2 is increasing in the deep sea and it's becoming um, uh, more acid, which could cause a real problem for corals that have calcium carbonate um, inside their skeletal structures. So... Um, we're going to be, you know, returning to these places and uh, hopefully not detecting uh, changes, but uh, but that that could be something that that um, that might be cropping up in the next few decades as a problem. Wow, that's really interesting to think about. Everything's connected, and you think things are are a little bit more protected down there in the depths, but really not for much longer than anything else at the surface. Yeah. Um, Certainly, uh, one of the reasons we were interested in the place was that um, it was apparently pristine and untouched, and then we're finding out uh, with some some modelings and some new samples uh, from the deep sea that CO2 might be increasing. And, and sort of on a curiosity scale, we did see traces of humans out there um, in terms of um, we found a uh, an old milk bottle that um, it turns out it was from a historic dairy around Point Reyes, and I think the dairy used to uh, supply the Navy with milk. Um, You're kidding, right? No, no. And how do you know it was from Point Reyes? Well, um, it, had a, um, it had a label on it uh, that uh, it was one of these old bottles where they didn't use um, paper labels, but they'd put the insignia right into the glass, and uh, one of the people on the cruise did some research and, and associated it with a dairy up there. That is amazing. <clears throat> We also found a, a Coke bottle with um, 
some writing on it that we couldn't figure out until we realized that uh, looking at the web that uh, is Korean writing for Coke, and we found an Olympia beer can and a broom and a newspaper. So uh, it could be that the organisms down there knew something about us long before we knew about them. As things were drifting down from the top. But I don't think those are real problems. They're just more curiosities. What are some other interesting um, finds you found on the bottom? Were there any uh, large carcasses of huge mammals that might be sitting down there? Yeah. Um, you know, we, don't, uh, we didn't see any uh, large carcasses, though any drift or debris that we did come across uh, did sort of have an aggregation of organisms on it. I think that there's, there's not much food down there, and when something does happen, uh, the organisms uh, that are living there sort of gravitate to it. And maybe the best example of that is even though it is, you know, uh, 80, 90 miles offshore, we did see some kelp out there that had obviously come from the kelp beds near the shoreline, drifted out, and sank. Um, so there is some link between the uh, the near coast and the offshore coast. We also found out, um, again, from our geologists when we're collecting rocks that um, – this is an ancient volcano. It's not active now, and, and most of the rock is volcanic. But when we picked up some rock samples, some of them were from uh, an origin of the coastline, some sandstone or something. So somehow rocks are getting from the coast um, out to the seamount. And there are certain guesses about how that might happen. Maybe they're attached to the kelp that then floats out and sinks. Um, there's other ideas that mammals sometimes um, eat rocks and small boulders to uh, maintain ballast in the water, and then they pass them, and then they, you know, they go down to the, uh, the seamount. And, you know, that seemed a little far-fetched to me, uh, as it would happen very often, because we found a fair number of these. But if you figure the seamount is about, uh, you know, 12 million years old, if it happens once a year, 12 million rocks, I guess you'd start to run across them pretty often. That's amazing. There's so many questions and that can be looked at just by studying and having seeing these things. The kelp thing is fascinating. It's just so deep, and I think it would get eaten before it got there. Yeah, somehow these things happen. So, you know, it's it's a big mystery. I know, um, you know, maybe, uh, um, maybe not everybody notices it, but I certainly do as a scientist, is whenever you go to answer one question, uh, you come up with uh, 10 more. And uh, certainly when you're going around the bottom of the ocean where nobody's ever looked before, um, it adds uh, a lot of excitement, but everywhere you look, you know, there's a, there's a new thing to figure out. Amazing. It's really exciting. So were you surprised by any of the findings uh, on this cruise while you were observing the ROV footage? Well, um, I think that what piqued my interest uh, the most was, um, was the corals, uh, their size, of course, their beauty. And then uh, we had a whole series of questions about you know, what uh, determines where they are located. And um, so what we tried to do in, in our last cruise was um, there's now better and better mapping of the seafloor, and we wanted to correlate the exact location of these corals with uh, different features on the bottom. And um, even though there's a sea mountain, the whole thing's pretty steep. Um, some of the corals were uh, were clearly located right on the ridges and at the top of what we call the cones. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, what is it about the uh, the substrate type? Um, what is it about the currents? We brought current meters down there that we measured currents in a large scale um, at the top of the seamount and then 
uh, in small scales right around the corals. And so um, I thought, well, we'll have that all figured out. They're obviously all living um, right there on the, on the tops of the cones. But as we went to do more detailed measurements, we found that uh, in some of the valleys at the top of the seamounts, there were a lot of corals, but they were different types. So uh, the different types of corals are finding the different types of spots that work just for them. Um, and trying to figure out these patterns is, is fun and exciting. That's really cool. What is the importance to um, marine biologists in general about taking the effort and time to study Davidson Seamount? There's been less than maybe a tenth of seamounts um, really explored. And so what, is, what are some of the outcomes of this for the larger uh, marine science community? Yeah, well, um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. You could sort of answer it um, a couple of ways, but I'll start with one way that might uh, interest your listeners, those uh, budding uh, scientists out there, in that um, we estimate there are about 30,000 seamounts uh, around the world, and actually less than 1.1% of them have been explored. So um, first of all, there, there's, there's a tremendous amount of area to be explored out there for, for your explorers. And we also know that um, associated with seamounts, there's a fair amount of endemism, right? So things that are found on one seamount are probably not likely, or are it's it's more it's likely that they're not found on other seamounts. So um, there's a tremendous amount of diversity down there that's not known. And uh, for example, from the Davidson Seamount, we know we've got nine new species never never been described by science, and we think there's might be eleven more. Um, but in terms of corals, there's only about um, maybe less than ten coral taxonomists in the world that can identify these things. So. If you're interested in identifying corals, maybe that's a field uh, you might want to get into. So there's um, there's a lot of seamounts. Um, there's a lot to be explored. And on all of those seamounts with these unique species, there are opportunities um, for a field called bioprospecting. When you look at natural organisms and to see if there's any kind of chemistry involved with them that might be useful to humans. So um, some sponges are being looked at that maybe. Uh, uh, helping uh, treat cancer. Um, there's some organisms that might be used uh, as a natural pesticide. And and uh, these things um, are, uh, uh, corals and sponges are often looked at uh, for these things because nothing grows on them. There's got to be some reason nothing's growing on them. It's because there's some sort of toxic substance. So there's a lot of opportunities for um, for studying the biology of these species, and then not just harvesting the ocean form, but developing ways of, of creating these chemicals synthetically. Um, so that's a, that's one of the uh, the opportunities there. The other is just an opportunity to educate the public about um, new places in the world and get them excited about it. And so the sanctuary wanted to go out there. We don't have any seamounts in, in any of our sanctuaries. And by including this one in the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, which is something that um, the regional public is interested in us doing, we can continue to teach uh, people about the oceans and the seamounts within them. So you've done two cruises out there and gathered tons of information. And I know that Monterey Bay has been very active in pursuing inclusion of the Davidson Seamount in the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. How, um, when do you think this will be decided upon? I know there's been a lot of public review. And um, is, do you think it's fairly likely that this will be included in the sanctuary? Uh, well, what we found was that there's um, a lot of uh, public support for this in our uh, 
in our public process. We have a, a management process just that, that like the one going on in, in Cordell Bank. Um, we've also found that uh, the Pacific Fisheries Management Council has taken an interest in this area. And based on our studies, they've actually changed regulations to make um, the Davidson Seamount an essential fish habitat and limit some of the destructive bottom trawling that might happen uh, there in the future like is happening in some other places. So um, some protection measures have been taken. Um, our Sanctuary Advisory Council, which are representatives from the public, has um, has looked favorably on including the Davidson Seamount in the Sanctuary. So it looks like uh, things are going uh, in that direction. I think a decision will be made sometime, uh, hopefully before next summer. So what are some of the protections that Davidson Seamount will get if it gets included in the sanctuary? Yeah, so um, part of it is protection, but part of it is also uh, the opportunity to uh, educate and do research. Um, in terms of protection, there's, it's not going to limit any fishing up at the surface. Most of the fishing that happens there is in the top, uh, in the top uh, you know, 50 feet of water, but we're just going to have a... a, a it's proposed to have a thousand foot buffer zone around the seamount where there there couldn't be any uh, any collecting, so that would be the protection of the sanctuary. But I think uh, most uh, I think probably most useful uh, for the public would be um, having a seamount in the sanctuary program. So the sanctuary program, which is um, one of the very few ocean programs that the United States of America has with a mandate to educate can use an opportunity to continue doing education about seamounts. Yeah, it's been so exciting to see the um, online logs that the sanctuary created as part of these missions. Um, do you happen to have the website that's um, available for people if they want to read up on the missions? Are these really cool summaries of the day and what people are finding and incredible pictures? Yeah. Um, why don't you share that website? Sure. You know, I think um, you know, some of these web addresses are a little bit long, so what might be best is to get on a search en engine like uh, Google and do a search for um, Simon, S-I-M-O-N, uh, space, sanctuary. And that'll bring you into the, the Simon website. And from there, uh, you can look on the habitat on, on the left side of the page and, and look for Davids and Seamount, and um, it'll take you to all of the... Uh, some of the projects that have happened there, and then all of the related web links. There's some fun ones, like um, there was a school in Berkeley, the School of the Madeline, that uh, had students do artwork of what uh, they thought Davidson Seamount might look like. So the Ambari website that you can find from that location has those posted. Um, there's um, lots of images. Um, if you look again from the Simon uh, site into the photo database, uh, your listeners can download... Um, high-quality, high-resolution images uh, for free and use them however they'd like to. And um, they're some of the best uh, uh, deep-sea pictures that are available out there, and we're seeing the Davidson Seamount used in publications around the world because um, not many of them have been looked at, and they're high-quality pictures. Um, in fact, um, for those of your listeners who, are li who watch TV and look for the uh, Discovery Channel, there's a program uh, coming up in... Um, at the end of March, called Planet Earth, and it was developed by the BBC. It'll be showing on the Discovery Channel. And one of their episodes is called um, Ocean Deep, and they cover seamounts in that section, and I'd say that probably 98% of the footage on seamounts is from the Davidson Seamount. 
wonderful. <clears throat> excuse me, wonderful. So that's at the end of the March on the B- um, BBC, probably played on local community, um, national public television. Well, it's actually going to be on the Discover Channel. Okay. So end of March, look around the Discover Channel. I think it's a, a twelve episode series that that'll run uh, uh, through April or something like that. Wonderful. Thanks for letting us know about that. So, Andrew, one of the questions I ask um, most of the guests that come on, I've only forgotten to ask it once, um, is what do you feel is you'd like listeners to know about their everyday role in protecting the ocean? Yeah, um, that's interesting. What would their everyday role be? And I think that um, I think just by understanding a little bit about the ocean, enjoying it by going, um, enjoying it by, you know, reading up on it, listening to these kinds of programs, um, that um, just by being aware of it, um, they'll become aware of, I think, what they'll, they'll, they'll be excited by it, and they'll love it, and then they'll see as they pick something they're particularly interested in that there are opportunities to help out. Um, whether it's you know being involved with a beach cleanup, or um, you know what uh, what is amazingly um, influential is when people take the time to write a letter to their congressman or senator, you know a heartfelt sort of handwritten or typed letter that uh, says that that you care about the oceans and uh, you want to study and protect them. You know that that's something that can go a long way. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show today, and also thank you for all your work in the marine science field, because we, as educators, need to have these cool explorations and information and science to share to get people excited. So thanks so much for your role, both as a scientist and for coming on the show today. Okay, well, thanks, Jennifer. It was fun. And uh, for the rest of the show, I brought in our Sanctuary Advisory Council Coordinator for Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, Rowena Forrest. And Rowena is... Rowena, are you here? I'm here. Oh, you're Hello, here. Hello, West Marin. <laughs> Rowena coordinates our Sanctuary Advisory Council, and I wanted to just bring her in so she could give us um, a little bit of an update of what the council is. So, Rowena, can you describe... What is the Sanctuary Advisory Council, and what do they do? Definitely. The Sanctuary Advisory um, Council is a community-based advisory group, which um, is established to provide advice and recommendations to the superintendent of the National Marine Sanctuaries around the country. And they provide advice on uh, management of the sanctuaries, including uh, operations and projects such as involving education and outreach, research and science, regulations and enforcement, and management planning. And... We work at Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, and our um, advisory council was established in 2002, and it was established originally to support the joint management plan review process currently, which is still currently underway for Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, as well as Gulf of the Farallones and Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuaries. We're almost done with it. (laughs) Yes, we are. It's been several years. How um, How many meetings do you have throughout the year? We have approximately, it varies year to year, but four meetings and one retreat. All meetings are open to the public other than the retreat. And when they're not open to the public, we do not vote on any issues or uh, pass any measures. We simply um, have a retreat um, to get training or um, to celebrate something that was accomplished by the council. But otherwise, we have about four public meetings a year. 
And usually they're held in the West Marin Sonoma region, right? Yes. Usually we're actually, specifically, we're usually at the Red Barn Classroom at Point Reyes National Seashore or Bodega Marine Lab. And where we're going to expand, we're going to be um, heading to Petaluma this year as well. And we've threatened to meet at the Bolinas Rod and Boat Club, locations such as that around West Marin and West Sonoma. Oh, that's great. Um, so what's coming up? You have a meeting coming up March 13th on Tuesday at Bodega Marine Lab. Can, yes, we do. Can you give us a brief overview of the agenda? Our meetings um, start at 930. And again, the public is really encouraged to attend. And we're always in beautiful locations. And um, there is a public comment <coughs> period in the morning. And we take care of sanctuary council business uh, for the first half. And then usually we have um, either uh, professional uh, presentations to educate the advisory council or some sort of panel discussion. And this one coming up um, is a particularly important meeting. We have two uh, major topics that we're going to approach. One is um, Sanctu- uh, the boundary of the National Marine Sanctuary's expansion bill and a, a mini panel discussion which is going to concern supporting West Marin and West Sonoma um, heritage fishing communities, uh, in particular Bolinas and Bodega Bay, um, and uh, low-impact fishing methods at Cordell Bank. And I can expand a little bit on the sanctuary boundary expansion if you would like me to. Sure. So who's presenting on that? Um, well, the panel discussion um, concerning the f- um, small port fisheries and owner-operator um, fishing communities is going to be Rod Fujita from the Environmental Defense um, Organization and Zeke Grader from the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Association from San Francisco. So they're both fabulous presenters, and they work well together, and it'll be a good opportunity for the public as well as the maritime heritage seats, uh, the uh, fishing community and the maritime heritage seats on the council to really interact with these two gentlemen. It sounds like it's going to be a really interesting talk. Definitely. And for the Sanctuary Expansion Bill, who will be presenting about that? We're going to have Tom Roth from Congresswoman uh, Lynn Woolsey's office, and uh, he will be giving us an update on this bill. And just briefly, that uh, Congresswoman Lynn Woolsey and Congressman Wayne Gilcrest um, uh, introduced this bill on February 20th, 2007. It's very recent. It's been in the works for several years, but now it was introduced to the House of Representatives, and it's to... Um, expand the boundaries of the Gulf of the Fairlawns and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries. And it's also supported by Senator Barbara Boxer. And um, it'll be introduced as a companion bill in the Senate as well. And um, it's been referred to the House Committee on Natural Resources. Wow, that's pretty exciting. It is. Well, it'll be interesting to hear from Tom Roth on that. And we hope that folks can attend this meeting or come to meetings in the future. Uh, where can folks learn more about other upcoming Sanctuary Advisory Council meetings? I'll briefly give our schedule. Um, throughout the year, we're going to be meeting on uh, locations are to be announced, and you can find it on our website, which is cardellbank.noaa.gov. And um, we're on the sidebar under Advisory Council. And we have a whole meeting schedule uh, listed there. And as we get our location set up, um, it's updated regularly, and we're going to be meeting June 7th. September 12th and December 6th as the other dates for this year. Excellent. So there are a couple different um, seats on the council. Can you just briefly remind me, what were the different seats? What what do they represent? You said research, education. Exactly. Research, education, conservation. Community at large, there's a community at large Sonoma and Marin County seat. And maritime activities. Um, as we mentioned education already, as well as we have government seats, which are non-voting seats, and they are filled by um, National Marine Fisheries Service and the United States Coast Guard, and they've been um, providing wonderful advice and uh, educating the council well. 
Are there seats that ever open up? When yes. when, when seats might be opening up again? <laughs> Very <laughs> soon we're going to have an opening for um, the Marin County uh, Community at Large seat. So we really encourage um, everybody to pay attention to the website and to apply for that seat when it when uh, it comes open. And there will be full uh, instructions on our website on how to apply and uh, get your uh resume in to us at the uh, um, Marine Sanctuary. Thank you very much, Rowena. That's a great update from the Sanctuary Advisory Council. Come to our meeting. Yeah. The Sanctuary Advisory Council also has been just so instrumental in helping guide um, what we're doing with this management plan that we've been doing for the last few years. We have really had incredible support from the the council members representing their constituencies. So Mm -hmm. if any of them are listening, we're so happy that you are helping us out and volunteering. Seamounts and other underwater features play a role in creating the productivity for this region. On the next show on Ocean Currents on April 5th, We'll be talking with Dr. John Largier from the Bodega Marine Laboratory about the ocean currents in this region. And so all the processes that are on top of the water and how they interact with the seamounts we talked about today, we're going to talk about on April 5th with, with uh, John and hear about a new oceanographic tool being put in the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. So please tune in on April 5th. Thanks for joining me today on Ocean Currents.